Type the word community into Amazon's search engine for books and you'll return more than 80,000 results. It's a popular topic. Uh, among the top books listed is Christine Porat's Mastering Community. Chapter one of her work begins with an observation about Phil Jackson, uh, the famed NBA basketball coach who won six championships with the Chicago Bulls and five uh, with the Los Angeles Lakers. Christine Porath and with her, Steve Kerr, observed that Jackson's success as a coach had, quote, much to do with his ability to make players feel like they were part of a community, a cohesive, mutually supportive community, a band of brothers that was much more than just a sports team. Well, with such a focus, it's hardly surprising, I think, that Jackson had such success. The truth is, is that we all long for community. We've all been made in God's image, and the triune God is in and of himself a community of three persons in one. A community of three distinct but inseparably related persons. And so having been made in God's image, we, it's not surprising that we long to belong. Perhaps that's why you're here this morning. Perhaps you're looking for a community that you might be welcomed into, encouraged to share your gifts and graces as well as receive the love and care that you were divinely designed for. If you're here for that reason, and really if you're here for any reason at all, then God's word has something to say to you this morning. For this morning, we drop back into our occasional doctrinal series through the Apostles' Creed. And in this series, we are revisiting the core truths of the Christian faith. So when we confess the, the words like we did earlier, we believe... The communion of saints. Do, do we know what we're saying? Do you know what we're saying when we are talking about the community of God's people? How do we know what we're saying? Well, we're going to unpack that phrase today. And as we think through this phrase, I hope that we will see our need for Jesus. Our need for Jesus' people. And how we are actually needed by Jesus' people. I pray that we will see that we've been called in community, into community, and fellowship on earth in preparation for our fellowship and community with the Lord Jesus and his people in glory. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles and open your Bibles to John, 1 John chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 3 here in just a moment. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 1021. I know that uh, I listed another text, another text in the bulletin, and with a question mark, just to keep you on your toes, we're going somewhere else. Um, honestly, I couldn't figure out where uh, I wanted to start this sermon. So uh, that was my error in leaving that there. Sorry about that. I hope you can forgive that oversight. Anyway, uh, the, the Apostles' Creed uh, emerged actually as a list of questions which candidates for baptism would be asked as they prepared to enter into the waters of baptism, as they prepared to enter into the visible membership of the Church of the Lord Jesus. Uh, this question and answer of the Apostles' Creed, this format, was used by a pastor in Rome by the name of Hippolytus around 214. A.D., uh, the creed was refined throughout the years, and it likely reached its final form sometime in the 7th century. The Apostles' Creed has been used by Christians then for nearly 1,800 years to confess our faith in the triune God. Now, to be sure, the Apostles' Creed was not written by the apostles so much as it was written to reflect the teaching of Jesus' apostles. And so the goal was to uh, set or put into words a succinct summary of the Christian faith. So today, as we look at the words, the communion of saints, what we're really going to do is examine the biblical underpinnings of that phrase. In other words, I'm not going to be preaching the creed. I'm going to be preaching the doctrine of the Bible that the creed is seeking to summarize. 
So that's why we'll look at 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, and other important passages which teach us about the communion of saints. And here, I, I, want to, I want to convince you, here's the main idea that I want to convince you of this morning in this sermon. Communion with Christ, it creates and cultivates communion with His church in preparation for perfect communion in glory. Or, more simply, you need Jesus. You need Jesus' people, and Jesus' people need you. I want to convince you of the truth that when Jesus saves a sinner, he makes them a saint. He brings them into a company, uh, into a company of his people, wherein they live in love and fellowship, helping one another in their pilgrimage in this world. I want you to be convinced that you need Jesus, most of all. You'll find a sermon outlined there in the bulletin that I trust will help you follow along and be perhaps a study guide for further reflection on the subject. The scripture passages that are kind of underlined there, those are the passages that I'm going to read or ask you actually to turn to in your Bible. I think it's good for you to be a good Berean engaged in turning in the pages of scripture as you listen to a sermon. So I want to look at those texts especially. In the main, as we seek to understand the Bible's teaching on the communion of saints, we're going to unpack this idea under the following headings. Communion created... Communion cultivated and communion consummated. Let's begin with our first point, communion created. And here's the big idea for this point, for communion created. Jesus creates a communion of saints by saving sinners and uniting them to himself and one another. So as we begin to unpack this phrase and this idea... I actually want you to consider that this phrase, where it's located in the creed itself, if you find that insert in your bulletin, you'll notice that the creed is is structured basically in a Trinitarian formula. There's statements concerning God the Father, statements concerning uh, the Son, Jesus Christ, and statements concerning the Holy Spirit. You'll notice that this phrase, the communion of saints, is actually under that section of the Holy Spirit. And that's because the Holy Spirit, being sent by God the Father and sent by Jesus the Son, unites us to Jesus himself. It's the particular work of the Holy Spirit to unite sinners to Jesus and make them saints. So that's why this particular phrase is located in that section. It's the Holy Spirit who brings us into fellowship and union with Jesus himself, as well as into fellowship and union with one another. In fact, fellowship, that word fellowship, is really the meaning of the word communion. You see, the creed has been translated from the Greek. And the Greek word underneath our English word for communion is koinonia. And koinonia simply means communion or fellowship. And, and the word has, has connotations of mutual sharing, as we are together sharing in something together. So when we begin to speak about the communion of saints, we're speaking of a people who share in something, or better yet, who share in someone, Jesus Christ. The people who have Christian fellowship with one another first have fellowship and communion with Jesus. For fellowship and communion with Christians flows out of fellowship and union with Jesus Christ. And I think this is what we see happening in our first text. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Read, read those verses now. Follow along as I read. That which was from the beginning, he's referring to Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Life was made manifest, and we've seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father 
and with his son, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, sorry, the Apostle John, who's writing to Christians, uh, and the aim, the main aim of his book is to help them know that they have eternal life with Jesus Christ. And notice where he begins. He begins by explaining the reality, the purpose of the incarnation. Uh, John explains that he has seen the eternal Son of God, that he's laid his hands upon him, and that he now proclaims him, that he himself has fellowship with the Son. And that he's inviting Christians into, people into fellowship with the Son as well. As you have fellowship with John and what he believes, so you have fellowship with the Son and with the Father. That's the remarkable claim of verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we also proclaim to you. So that, that's the purpose clause. So that you too may have fellowship, koinonia, communion, with us. And indeed our fellowship, our communion, koinonia, is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. You see, you see what John is saying here. If you have fellowship with us, you have fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. John is saying the purpose of the Son's incarnation, the purpose of Jesus' incarnation is fellowship, communion, koinonia. The Son of God came into the world to bring you into communion with Himself, with God, and with God's people. The purpose of the incarnation is so that you would have fellowship, communion with the living God, His Son, His church. Jesus took on flesh to bind you to God and to bind you to God's people. And if you're here this morning, you're not a believer, follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then friend, I want to invite you and urge you to come into fellowship with God and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Now that very invitation tells us something, doesn't it? If I have to invite you into fellowship with God, it tells you that naturally we are all not in fellowship with God. In fact, we've broken fellowship with God. Think back to the very beginning of the Bible with Adam and Eve in the garden who had perfect fellowship with God. And yet when they sinned and rebelled against God, they broke that communion and fellowship with God. They started hiding from God because they knew they were guilty of sin, rebelling against Him. We have lived the same way. We've lived our own way rather than God's way. We've declared that God is not the ruler and king of our lives, but that we're the ruler and king of our lives. We've broken fellowship with God. And yet, and yet God in His love sent His Son to renew this fellowship, to regain this fellowship, to live the life that we've not lived, the life of perfect obedience to God the Father, to die the death that our sins deserve, because they deserve to be punished, for we've sinned against the Holy God. And yet, three days after Jesus' death on the cross, He was raised from the grave and vindicated, proving to us all that those who turn from their sins and trust in Him might have union and fellowship with God. They come into fellowship as they embrace their faith, embrace the, uh, Jesus and place their faith in Him. Friend, if you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, have you come into this communion? If you want to know more about what that means and what that looks like in your life day by day, I'd love to talk with you that, about that. Come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or, or, or family member that you came here with this morning. There's no more important news that you can think about this morning and what it means to come into fellowship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. So, the communion of saints means, first means, that Jesus, he saved a group of sinners. He's brought them into fellowship with himself. And in fact, this is why we are called saints. When we speak of the communion of saints, we're not speaking about some special class of religious people who've done some extraordinary works or who may be prayed to. No, we are talking about sinners whom Jesus has lavished his extraordinary love upon. He has set them apart for salvation. And in that sense, He has sanctified them and made them saints. 
So consider what Paul says to the grimy church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. And such were some of you, after listing a whole bunch of their sins, he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We're told something similar in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by a single offering is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In the last chapter of Hebrews, we hear these wonderful words. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. It's the Spirit applying the work of Jesus that sanctifies us and sets us apart for salvation, thereby making us saints. And this is what we actually see in the New Testament. It comes especially clearly in the New Testament that saints are simply saved sinners. Now, we don't have time to read through all of the texts that are listed there on that handout in your bulletin. But for now, consider that Christians are called saints in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 9, verse 13. They're called saints in Lydda, Acts chapter 9, verse 32. When Paul writes to the church in Rome, he says that those who are called to belong to Jesus, those who are loved by God, are saints. Romans chapter 1, verse 7. Remember that the Christians in Corinth, they struggle with all sorts of sins. And yet, at the very beginning of his letter, Paul calls them saints in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Many of Paul's letters actually open with greetings to the saints. That happens in Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. Paul greets the saints in those cities. And here's the point. Saints are simply saved sinners. That's the teaching of the Bible. Now, in my uh, preparation for this sermon, I, I took it upon myself to read through several dictionaries, Bible dictionaries, that had the definition for saint. And I laughed when I came to the dictionary of the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, which said, see names for Christians. And I thought, yep, that's exactly right. Saint is just another name for a Christian. Now, if you've been tracking closely, then you'll know that this is very different from the common Roman Catholic conception or understanding of saint. So, right, according to the Roman Catholic Church, a saint is someone who's canonized by the Holy See. And they're even someone you could appeal to in prayer. But this is actually not the teaching of the Bible. Uh, think back to the church in Corinth, whom Paul called saints. They had a track record of selfishness, greed, idolatry, sexual morality, and still yet more. And still Paul called these, the divinely inspired Apostle Paul called these brothers and sisters saints. Think of the saints in Lydda, mentioned in Acts chapter 9, verse 32. We know precious Lydda about them. They lived common Christian lives. And that's exactly what is extraordinary about them, is that they just lived common Christian lives. Not that they performed miracles, that we could pray to them. Now, as I said, the, the Vatican would actually urge people to publicly invoke the names of saints to intercede and mediate for us on earth. But the problem with that is that the scriptures clearly tell us that there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You find that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. We're to look for, to no one else for mediation but the Lord Jesus Christ. Anything else is idolatry. I mean, that's what it is to appeal to a saint to mediate for you on earth. You're looking to someone other than Jesus to mediate between you and God. And that, the scriptures teach us, is idolatry. The, the saints in glory, they cannot save you and they cannot sanctify you. But Jesus can. So look to him. Friends, the plain teaching of the Bible is that God in His grace saves sinners. And He, He, not the Holy See, makes them saints. Yes, we still struggle with sin, but we are truly saints, beloved by and belonging to Jesus Christ. We are, in the words of Martin Luther, simul justus est peccator. 
simultaneously justified or saint and sinner. Yes, in God's sight, we are sinners. And still because of Jesus' righteousness has been credited to our account, we are just. We are righteous, sanctified, and set apart for salvation. Welcome to a gathering of saints this morning. We are saints. Now, this phrase and the teaching of the Bible is that we are saints, plural, right? Uh, Later this afternoon, if you were to go back and read through all of those texts in the New Testament and look at the use of the word saint, you would notice that almost all of them are in the plural and referring to a group of people. So when we come into a saving relationship with Jesus, we are made saints, when we're united to him, we're then united to all of those who he has united to himself. Right? So union with Jesus means union with Jesus' people. And just like any other family, you don't get to pick your siblings. Right? Uh, you don't get to pick the people that you are duty-bound to love. And still, if Jesus' love is flowing in you, then you will love the people that Jesus loves. So if you're, if you're a member here, do you love your fellow members? Is your life with them so rich, so meaningful, that your heart is filled with warmth and affection for them? And love, as we all know, love takes work, doesn't it? It takes time. Love takes sacrifice and giving of ourselves. Are you giving yourself to your fellow members? Or are you keeping yourself all to yourself? Sacrifice and the giving of self is exactly how Jesus loved us. And as we mirror and imitate his love to one another, we will cultivate our communion with Christ and with one another, which is what we turn to think about next. Having thought about how communion is created by Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit uniting us to Jesus, how he creates a communion of saints, we turn now to think about our second point, communion cultivated. Here's the main idea that I want you to to have in your mind as we, we think about this. Having been brought into fellowship with Christ, you need to pursue real and meaningful fellowship with his people. If your interactions with Jesus' church are simply transactional rather than relational, then your spiritual life will fizzle rather than flourish. Because here's the truth. You need Jesus' people, and Jesus' people need you. Uh, Beloved, you should cultivate communion, fellowship, the mutual sharing of life for the glory of Jesus. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 13, verse 35. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's on page 900. John chapter 13, verse 35. I want you to hear the words of your Savior. And I want you to see that we should, create, we should cultivate communion so that the glory of Jesus' love is shown. It's what a number of the songs we were singing about uh, were, were about earlier. And I think in some degree, we have to be challenged by these words of the Lord Jesus. In, in these words, Jesus explains to us how he is glorified by our love for one another. John chapter 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, if you can, think back to the sermon last week that our brother Zane preached here. He explained that a disciple is not merely a student of a teacher, but that a disciple so learns the way of his master that he takes on the expressions and the mannerisms, the attitude, the affections of the master. A true disciple is one who so learns the way of the master that he not only communicates his content, but that he also communicates his character. This is why it's important that we love one another. Because in doing so, we actually show the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And the love of Christ is exactly what the world needs to see, to know, and to receive. Now, turn your Bibles to another passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You can find it on page 959 of the Bible's writing. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to read verses uh, 14 to 27. And as I read, I want you to see a few things in this passage. From this passage, I want you to see that the Bible not only assumes Christians will be connected to the body of Christ, and that every member of the body is needed, but I also want you to see that we should cultivate communion so that the glory of Jesus' care is shown. There's a care given to different members of the body in this passage. One of the things that Paul's going to say is that we should care for one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning there in verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Friends, brothers and sisters, do you see the, the connected nature of the body of Christ? Friend, if you're not a member of a local church, then you're like an arm that's actually cut off from the body. You'll spiritually wither like an arm separated from the body. Do you see in these verses the, the necessity of each member of the church? You, you can't say to one part of the body, I, I don't need you. No, you do. You, you need that part of the body. We need each other. We need each different part with each of our different gifts. And so if you're not in regular fellowship here, then you're withholding the love that Christ means for you to give to his people, the love that they need. And you as well are not receiving the love that you need from them, that God has designed through their gifts and graces to you. Do you, do you see in these verses how the care of Christ is shown as honor is bestowed and modesty is practiced? Do you see the sharing in the sufferings of other members and rejoicing in the honor of other members? You should cultivate communion with fellow members of the body of Christ so that the glory of Jesus and His care is shown. But how? How can we promote and prosper and protect the communion of saints? Well, the early church shows us the way. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 
to 47. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. You can find the passage on page 911 of the Bibles provided. Page 911 of the Bibles provided. Now, as we begin to read these verses, I want you to see how the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem were not merely connected to one another by a common profession of faith, but that they were actually devoted to one another. And a question that each one of us should ask as we read this passage is this. Are we devoted or are we detached? Are we distant from our fellow believers or are we drawing near? And I promise you this. If you follow the pattern of the Christian life that we find among the Christians at the First Baptist Church in Jerusalem, it will radically transform your life. It will reorient your life. Follow along. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. From this text, I hope that you can see that you, you should be devoted to Jesus' church. You should be devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. That's just a summary of the church's activity. It summarizes preaching and partnership, participation in the Lord's Supper, and corporate prayer. This is what the church in Jerusalem was devoted to. And they are exemplary for us in that regard. So, so can it be said of you that you are devoted to the apostolic teaching of the gospel? Are you, are you giving yourself to hearing opportunities for gospel teaching? When we, in fact, are all devoted to the same teaching, think about it, we're all actually sitting under the same teaching right now, our unity and communion is being cultivated. Are you devoted to the apostolic teaching of the gospel? Can it be said that you are devoted to fellowship with Jesus' people? Here is that koinonia, that communion word again. And by and large, I actually think our church family excels at fellowship. Generally speaking, you are, you're not quick to, to run out of here, but instead you, you hang around and you, you talk with one another after the service. You participate in the mutual sharing of life. What's going on in your life? What's going on in my life? What can we be praying about? Uh, you don't just talk about sports or what happened at the Oscars, but you have spiritual conversation. And that's really important. And if, if that's not your kind of personal experience, if you don't tend to have spiritual conversation, if you want rich fellowship and spiritually meaningful conversations, then I've got a few suggestions for you. Three, actually. Here's the first one. Don't plan to have anything to do after the service. That's number one. Plan to stick around and talk with someone after the service. A sign of being devoted to God's church is that you plan to be present to cultivate relationships and community. Here's another suggestion for promoting community. Plan to have something specific and spiritual to talk about. So think about it as you're going through the service this morning. If a song or a prayer or a scripture reading or a statement from the sermon jumps out to you and encourages you or, or raises questions for you, 
then star it, mark it in your bulletin, plan to talk with someone about it after the service. Hey, I've got this question about what he said. What, What do you think about that? And off you go in the conversation. Or did you really appreciate that line from Christian Hearts and Love United? Seek alone in Jesus' rest. Are you doing that with with your soul? I I need to give myself to seeking Jesus. Have some spiritual uh, conversation uh, following the service. And if you've ever walked by me at the door, and if I've had my um, thinking cap on, you, you would have heard a question like this from me. So what from the service or the sermon was helpful to your soul? You can go ahead and steal that from me, and you can have that among each other. You can have that kind of conversation among each other. So in order for us to cultivate a spiritual communion, we've got to have spiritual conversation. And children, uh, youth, young people, you can do this too. This is something you can be involved in too. You should listen for something insightful and encouraging in the service. And you can try to talk about it with your parents or your peers or pepper an elder with a question. Uh, Don't bring all of them to me. They'll all take as many of them as you got. You can also give the hard ones to the other guys. Uh, Yeah, let's talk about spiritual things. We'd love to talk to you about the Lord. Um, So be involved with this as well. All right, here's my third suggestion on fellowship, and it might be the one that you like the least, but here we go. Plan to sit forward in the worship service. Think of this room, think of the sanctuary, like a giant pinball machine. As you come in, you launch yourself up forward into the sanctuary. You know what happens when when you sit up front You have to bump into people as you make your way out, like that ball does going back down the table. And you don't get hit by a flipper at the door, sending you back in to talk to people uh, about, hey, have you made a connection with this person or that person? So plan to sit forward, and that'll force you to meet someone along the way, on the way out. Uh, So cultivate deep fellowship uh, and conversation with one another. Just a few suggestions for, for fellowship. Now notice there, you see in verse 42, there's a reference to the breaking of bread. That's probably a reference to communion. And, and when we talk about the communion of saints, we're talking really about a larger category. But the Lord's Supper has to be involved with that as well. Participating in the Lord's Supper is certainly an aspect of the communion of saints. And one of the things that I like about our celebration of the Lord's Supper is when we think about communion, right? We're sharing in life together. What are we doing? We're sharing a tray with one another. I, I, I share in, in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. I share the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ with you. We're not only sharing together, we're visibly showing that. We're also serving one another, uh, just like the Lord Jesus has served us. So as we partake together, remember that we're showing our mutual fellowship in Christ together. And the breaking of bread is also mentioned there in verse 46. So you get it in verse 42, probably a reference to communion. Verse 46, it's likely a reference to hospitality. So... Here's another thing. If you feel like you're struggling to have community here at the church, ask yourself the question, have I invited anyone over to my home or apartment? Have I uh, had a meal with fellow believers where we eat and talk uh, and read scripture and, and pray for one another? That will likely change the dynamic of your fellowship. If you get off of your back foot and step forward onto your front foot and pursue hospitality and fellowship, I, I think uh, communion will be promoted. And communion, we see, is also promoted in verse 42 by prayer. Pray for one another when you're together and when you're apart. Funny things happen. Like when you purpose to pray through the membership directory on a a page a day, right? You'll have those saints probably popping up into your thoughts later on in the day. Uh, Tell them that you're, you're praying for them or ask them how you can be praying for them. And that'll cultivate our unity as a body of Christ. 
often God uses prayer to expand the love that we have in our hearts for one another. So when God's people pray, sometimes their hearts grow three sizes that day. Join us for prayer tonight in our prayer meeting. I'm excited that we get to have one of our supported ministries to hear about their work and to pray for God to do greater work in and around the world for the glory of his name. Now in verses 44 and 45 here in Acts 2, you see generosity. And one of the things that that constantly really amazes me about our congregation is your generosity. Um, When members of our congregation are in need, sometimes the elders will ask the congregation to give to the benevolence fund. And every single time the congregation steps up, you all give joyfully and happily to the benevolence fund. And no need of our member has uh, failed to have been met. So I am grateful to God that he has worked generosity in your hearts. And generosity too, it cultivates communion as we give to a common goal, right? Of seeing Christ's name proclaimed here and around the world and seeing Jesus' people provided for here in our church family. Notice too, verse 46, that these members of the First Baptist Church in Jerusalem cultivated communion on more than just the Lord's day, on more than just Sunday. You see verse 46, day by day, they were meeting together for fellowship and feasting. Right? Think about what it means to be devoted to something. When you're devoted to something, you give more than just an hour or two, one day a week to it. Right? So if you want to become proficient in a sport, you will give hours and hours to it, multiple days a week. You're devoted to it in that sense. We should be devoted to being with God's people. Uh, can you say that you're devoted to God's people? Are you finding time outside of the Lord's sake to cultivate communion? And I don't know if this jumped out to you, but it jumped out to me this week reading through this passage. I hadn't noticed this before, and I have actually already preached through this passage in Acts before. Um, did you notice the double day-by-day language? You can find at the beginning of verse 46, the end of verse 47. Their day-by-day fellowship led to the Lord adding to their number day-by-day. Now, that's, that's not to say that if we have day-by-day fellowship, the Lord's necessarily going to add to our number. He may be pleased to do that. This is God's sovereign prerogative. But at least here, we see that it's almost as if the Lord was using their communion, their fellowship, as an evangelistic means. Think back to what Jesus said. We read earlier, John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Devote yourself to fellowship with God's people. Go to the park together. Go shopping together. Spread mulch. Do yard work together. Wash dishes together. Go to lunch or coffee together. Who knows what the Lord might be pleased to do through our devotion to one another. And be happy about it. Be happy to spend time with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice the community of saints in Jerusalem. They had glad and grateful hearts. We all need glad and grateful hearts. And what made them glad and grateful was the Lord's mercy and gratitude and grace toward them. So we should talk about these things. We should talk about the Lord's grace to us. It'll encourage our gladness and gratitude. These are all things that we can do to promote communion. But the scriptures, I think, also call us as Christians to protect our communion. Uh, your brothers and sisters, first, need your holiness. That's one way we protect communion. They need to see you living a life that's different and distinct from the world around us. Your imitation of Jesus will help them imitate Jesus. It's useful in life to have an example. Think of all the examples we find in Scripture. Paul explicitly tells Christians to imitate his way of life. Timothy and Epaphroditus are held out as examples of faith. Lois and Eunice are as well. Endeavor with all your might to abstain from sin. Be holy as the Lord is holy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 
verse 1 tells us, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Your brothers and sisters need your holiness, and your pursuit of holiness helps to protect the holiness of the wider body. Sin can corrupt and drive wedges between our fellowship and communion. What was it that Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when he was writing to the church in Corinth about known and scandalous sin? He said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. This is why it's important for us to open ourselves up to accountability to one another. It's why I hope that in all of our men's groups, we're asking some version of these three questions. How can I pray for you? So just kind of general prayer requests. Are you reading your Bible and praying? And are you looking at things you shouldn't be looking at or struggling with sins that you need to confess? Hopefully that's an opportunity to confess sin. And I I hope that sisters have some kind of corollary questions to that as well. We want to be uh, confessing our sin, seeking accountability, and helping each other live holy lives before the Lord. And as we pursue holiness, we're always remembering that we're not trusting in our good works. right? We're not trusting uh, in our strength, but in the strength of our Savior. We're trusting in Jesus' work on our behalf. Another way that we can protect the church's communion is by standing together for the truth. See, Jude 3 tells us this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. See, Jude is saying, contend for the faith, stand for truth together. When the world assaults Jesus, His truth, and His people, we should stand with our Savior, His truth, and His people. We should proclaim His name and the truth about Him. We should even be willing to share in the sufferings of Jesus' people in their stand for the truth. Listen to how the writer to the Hebrews commended the church for standing with those in suffering. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 35, we read this. But recall the former days, after you were enlightened, You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and a binding one, an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward." Do you hear how those saints were commended for standing with their fellow believers who were suffering? And even they they faced the plundering of their property. They visited those in prison. They identified with them visibly and publicly before all. We should do the same. We should bear one another's burdens. And we should also bear with one another's faults, their blemishes. We protect our communion by not being easily offended. And when we are... To bear with one another's faults. It is popular and powerful these days to be offended. But in a communion of those who are simultaneously sinners and saints, it is inevitable that we will be genuinely offended and genuinely sinned against. There will be times where we need to go directly to our brother and show him his fault. However, often we will simply need to let love cover over a multitude of sins. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 8. Proverbs chapter 19 verse 11 reminds us, good sense makes one slow to anger and is a glory to overlook an offense. We're all finite, we're all fallible, we're all fallen. 
We're all flawed. We're going to sin. And we're probably going to sin against one another. Very often we should forgive one another and cover over our brother or sister's transgression. We can protect and preserve communion in another way too. We should aim to preserve unity and be careful not to divide over matters of personal preference rather than biblical principle. As far as it depends upon you, live at peace with your brothers and sisters. Romans 12, 18. Proactively, we must be wary and even avoid those who divide the church. Did you know that was an admonition and instruction from the Apostle Paul? In Romans chapter 16, verse 17, Paul writes this. I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, Paul says. Avoid those who divide the church. Don't share company with them and don't give them a hearing. And what do you do if you disagree with a brother or sister in the church family? You see if you can find a way to agree in the Lord first. Carefully weigh whether or not that which you disagree with your brother or sister on is really a matter of biblical principle or personal preference. Think, think of Paul's admonition to Iodia and Syntyche in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 to 5. There Paul basically says, look, the Lord is at hand. The, the Lord Jesus is coming back soon. Should you really be divided on earth when you'll soon be united in heaven? So think carefully about that which you disagree about, whether or not it's personal preference or if it's biblical principle. And then find a way, by God's grace, to agree in the Lord. For we will soon be united in heaven. And speaking of heaven, that is where our communion, where the communion of God's people is perfectly consummated. This is our third point. It's also going to serve as the conclusion to the sermon as well. Turn in your Bibles to another passage, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 to 17. That is on page 1009 of the Bibles provided. Hebrews 12, verses 12 to 17. As we read this passage, I pray that you will be convinced that our communion on earth is preparation for our communion with Christ and His people in glory. Our time together here on earth is doing something. God is doing something. And God is doing something through our communion. We are helping each other make it home to glory. Read Hebrews chapter 12. Follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 to 17. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it, here's the key verse that I want you to see. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Here's what I want you to see in these verses. One of God's purposes for our communion here on earth is to prepare us, to propel us, and help us persevere in the journey home to heaven. We get weary, so our hands droop. The road is long and difficult. There are traps and trials along the way. 
so our knees get weak. But we bear the obligation from Scripture here to see to it that no one among our communion of saints fails to obtain the grace of God. We pursue communion with Christ, and we pursue communion with His people so that they make it home to heaven. And they are doing the same for us. That's the essence of our church covenant. We promise to help one another along the way. And I want your eyes to behold the end of the journey. Perfection in glory and perfect fellowship in heaven. So flip forward toward the end of the Bible to Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. That's on page 1032 of the Bibles provided. Revelation 7, verses 9 to 17. As we prepare to read this passage, I want you to notice the cry of the company of the redeemed is one. Right? They, they cry aloud and praise God with one voice. In glory, there's no more division, no more depravity, no more splits and schisms, but perfect communion. There's no more imperfect service. There's only perfect service. There's no more sin staining our speech. There's no more... Um, no, no more of the world harming or hurting the people of God. There is only a world of love where the Lamb, where the Lamb so loves His people that He wipes away every tear from their eyes. And friends, if you're here this morning, if you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want to urge you to read this passage knowing that you can have this glorious end and this communion with God and with His people if you come to Jesus Christ and trust in Him. Join the company of his people by faith in Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is where our communion is headed. This is communion consummated. Revelation 7, verses 9 to 17. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying aloud and, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the, uh, generation, of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This, friends, this, brothers and sisters, is why you need Jesus, because you cannot be a part of that communion in glory if you do not have communion with Him. This is why you need Jesus, people, because they will help you make it to that communion 
in glory. This is why Jesus' people need you, so that you can make them, help them make it there too. This is what you were created for, communion with Jesus and his saints. And so may God give us the grace to practice on earth communion with his saints, so that we're prepared for the communion of the saints in heaven. Let's pray together.